Preston in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Well, good afternoon and thank you for joining me. We've got two hours ahead of us talking about the things that matter most. Pleased to see yesterday that Archbishop Alan Vigneron, who is the ordinary of the Archdiocese of Detroit, released a pastoral letter dealing with the issue of gender confusion and the church's response to it. It's it's what one has come to expect from the Archbishop. It is a, a patient, reasoned, uh, faithful exposition of Catholic teaching. I'm going to share a little bit of it uh, with you, and I'm also going to share a story from the New York Times uh, of a young woman who has now been, quote, detransitioned. Uh, it's, it's a stirring uh, account. That's coming up. Also, you hear people say, I mean, talk hosts like Glenn Beck or Tucker Carlson say things like, the United States is bankrupt, right? Now, is that true? I mean, what, what do economists know about the state of our economy? Are we really bankrupt? Uh, Dr. Robert Waples joining us, answering that question from Wake Forest University. And then we're going to be joined by Dr. Michael New, who has uh, just is back uh, from the CPAC conference. And over the weekend, uh, former President Trump uh, dominated a straw poll uh, at CPAC and then handily won the South Carolina primary in Nikki Haley's home state. CPAC covered a lot of topics, including a panel devoted to sanctity of life issues. So Michael's going to join us to share what he's learned there. Now, in the second hour of today's program, we're delighted to have with us Dr. Robert Festigi from Sacred Heart Major Seminary. Uh, There's been a new publication, a a really serious piece of work, too. It's called Humane Vitae in Catholic Sexual Morality. It's actually a response to a document put out, uh, I think, two years ago or so by the Pontifical Academy for Life. And I think uh, there's issues here that really need to be aired. And so Dr. Fastigi will be doing that with us coming up in the second hour of today's program. But first, let's go to the news headlines with Steve Clark. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Tuesday, February 27th. It's the Feast of St. Gregory of Narrant, Doctor of the Church. Today's news is brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at AveMaria.edu. Michigan is holding its presidential primary. Republicans and Democrats going to the polls in the battleground state, which holds the final major contest before Super Tuesday. While former President Trump is expected to win Michigan, Nikki Haley has vowed to stay in the race, claiming that most Americans disapprove of both Trump and President Biden. Meanwhile, there's an effort to get Arab Democratic voters in Michigan to withhold their support of Biden over his handling of the Israel-Hamas war. 
Funding to fight the border surge and aid to Ukraine are major stumbling blocks to stop the partial government shutdown in four days. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Ukraine was one of the most intense I have ever encountered in my many meetings in the Oval Office. Meanwhile, House Speaker Mike Johnson said securing the border is the number one concern among Republicans, and it takes precedent over any spending bills involving Ukraine or Israel. The first priority of the country is our border and making sure it's secure. I, I believe the president can take executive authority right now today to change that, and I told him that again today in person, as, I, as I've said to him many times. With no measure to fund the government or extend current funding levels, a partial shutdown would start Saturday at midnight Eastern. It would impact the Department of Veteran Affairs and the FDA. The Midwest is bracing for stormy weather. The National Weather Service says major cities in the Midwest could be impacted into the overnight hours with severe storms that could bring isolated tornado threats, damaging winds, and large hail. And Wendy's is testing surge pricing similar to the way Uber prices its rides. Known as dynamic testing, the practice changes prices of items throughout the day. Testing is scheduled for 2025. From your AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Yesterday, Archbishop Alan Vigneron the Archdiocese of Detroit, released a pastoral letter, The Good News About God's Plan. It deals with the challenges of gender identity, and it's the kind of patient, reasoned, faithful exposition of Catholic teaching that we've come to expect from Archbishop Vigneron. I'm going to draw on uh, his document uh, as I make some comments on gender identity. I'm also going to share with you a story from the New York Times. But first of all, let me point out that next Saturday, Ave Maria Radio and Father Gabriel Richard High are holding our annual Familiaris Consortio Conference right at the high school. Our topic is male and female. He created them responding to gender dysphoria in truth and charity. Now, we're beginning at 8.15 in the morning. We light breakfast there. We're going to go till noon. And there's no charge at all. So we have an outstanding uh, panel of speakers, Attorney John Bursch, who's the author of Loving God's Children, The Church and Gender Ideology. It's a book that's getting a lot of attention. Dr. Paul Hrus will be joining us, looking at the scientific claims surrounding gender ideology. And Father Sean Kilcauley will be uh, sharing with us a pastor's perspective on this. I'll be leading a panel who will answer your questions. We're trying to leave a lot of time for your questions. And again, it's this Saturday at 8.15 in the morning until noon. So join us. Now, it helps if you register ahead of time. So go to FGRHS, Father Gabriel Richard High School, FGRHS.org, slash event. And register, FGRHS.org, slash event. Uh, Archbishop Vigneron points out in his uh, pastoral letter that was released yesterday, he said, when John, St. John Paul II began his teaching on the human person and sexuality, which we now call the theology of the body, he started at the beginning. That is, he started in the creation account, the first chapters of Genesis. Quote, then God said, let us make human beings in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the tame animals, all the wild animals, and all the creatures that crawl on the earth. God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
end quote. Well, first among these truths uh, from Genesis is that we're not byproducts or accidents. We are created. We are intended. We are chosen. We are willed. And because God is all-knowing, we were chosen from all eternity. So from the beginning of time, you and I were willed into being by the God of all creation. And for this reason, even today, parents are co-creators with God in the work of bringing new children into the world. Secondly, we're not our own creators. Our coming to be happens outside of ourselves. So life is a gift. It's not our own creation. It's a gift given to us without our choosing, without our earning it. We can only receive it. And this means that we're not the author of our own lives, nor do we have limitless autonomy over our own lives. Quote, male and female, he created them. This line in the creation account reveals to us that our sex is willed by God at our creation and given to us as a gift. God willed that human persons would be either male or female. Sex is assigned not by a doctor, not by the parents, not by any individual, but genetically and biologically by God in the act of creation. Now, we certainly are aware of rare genetic abnormalities that cause disorders of sexual development. We have uh, Kleinfelter syndrome, there's um, androgen insensitivity syndrome, and we firmly believe God created those with such conditions for a special purpose in life. This should not, however, cause confusion about typical human genetics or biology. Now, in contrast to this Christian vision of the human person, there is in our culture now an alternate dualist vision of mankind has become popular. According to this dualist version, the human person is not created or designed. He is not an integrated union of body and soul. He is simply an immaterial self that possesses a material body. The body is merely a vessel or an instrument. Sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's neutral, sometimes it's a hindrance to the goal of living as my real self. Now, Again, in this dualist view, the body doesn't reveal the person at all. It's simply something the person possesses and can manipulate for his or her own purposes. I can do anything I want with my body because there's no objective designed or created unity between my body and me. And this dualist approach to the person has led to some very wrong-headed solutions to the problems of gender confusion. Let me go to a story uh, from the New York Times uh, recently, actually February 2nd to be precise. It tells the story of Grace Powell. When she was 12 or 13, Grace discovered that she could be a boy. She's growing up in a fairly conservative community in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and Powell, like many teenagers, didn't feel comfortable in her own skin. She was unpopular and frequently bullied. Puberty made things worse. She suffered from depression and was in and out of therapy. She said that I felt so detached from my body, and the way it was developing actually felt hostile to me. It was classic gender dysphoria, a feeling of discomfort with your sex. 
So Grace began reading about transgender people online, and she believed the reason she didn't feel comfortable in her body was that she was in the wrong body, and transitioning seemed like the obvious solution. The narrative she had heard and absorbed was that if you don't transition, you'll end up killing yourself. So at 17, desperate to begin hormone therapy, Grace broke the news to her parents. They sent her to a gender specialist to make sure she was serious. And in the fall of her senior year of high school, she started cross-sex hormones. She had a double mastectomy the summer before college, and she went to college as a transgender man named Grayson. Sarah Lawrence College, by the way, where she was paired with a male roommate on a men's floor. At five foot three, she felt she came across as a very effeminate gay man. She tells us that at no point during her medical or surgical transition did anyone ask her about the reasons behind her gender dysphoria or her depression. At no point was she asked about her sexual orientation, for instance. And at no point was she asked about any previous trauma. And so neither the therapist nor the doctors ever learned that she'd been sexually abused as a child. Uh, she's now 23 and detransitioned, and she now uh, told the New York Times that I wish there had been more open conversations. But I was told there is one cure and one thing to do if this is your problem, and this will help you. Now, progressives often portray the heated debate over childhood transgender care as a clash between those who are trying to help growing numbers of children express what they believe their genders to be, and conservative activists and politicians who just won't let kids be themselves. Pointed out in this New York Times piece, though, transgender activists have pushed their own ideological extremism, especially by pressing for a treatment orthodoxy that has faced increased scrutiny in recent years. And under that model of care, clinicians are expected to affirm a young person's assertion of gender identity and even provide medical treatment before or even without exploring other possible sources of distress. You know, Grace's story shows how easy it is for young people to get caught up by the pull of ideology in this atmosphere. And she, she laments. Here's what she says. What should be a medical and psychological issue has been morphed into a political one. It's a mess. End quote. It's a very moving story. And there's more to it, too, by the way. Uh, but it's in the February 2nd New York Times. Individuals like Grace who face the challenge of gender confusion, deserve, first and foremost, to receive our patient love, compassion, and support. Uh, we must lovingly accompany them by acknowledging their pain, listening to them, making sure they know they are heard, and assuring them of God's personal love for them. He does have a plan for their lives, and it's a plan for their good and they're flourishing. When Jesus encountered suffering and pain in the Gospels, it touched his heart. He allowed himself to be moved with compassion by the sufferings of others. In fact, 
The incarnation, God becoming man, is a shocking example of Jesus' solidarity with us in our suffering. Therefore, we should never feel that anyone is too broken or confused for us to come alongside and offer the love and support which Christ desires people to receive through us. We shouldn't, you know, we should, look, we have got something beautiful to offer people. And we shouldn't be ashamed of this beautiful truth of the human person that's been revealed to us by natural law and by divine revelation. We, we can play tr- a tremendous healing role in this age if we learn how to proclaim with confidence and joy the good news about the human person who has been made in God's image and likeness and united to Christ by his incarnation. By doing this, we help our brothers and sisters rediscover what it means to be human and to value God's immutable gift of one's identity as a man or a woman. We have so much to offer, and so many times we are in a posture of reaction because of the unfair statements and ignorant statements people make about what we teach. And it's so important for us to fall out of the web of that reaction and into the arms of Christ himself and remember that we are his extension in the world. And we should never be ashamed of the beautiful truth of the human person that's revealed to us by natural law and divine revelation. We've got a role in this age to proclaim with confidence the good news about the human person. Today's programming on 990 WTEO is brought to you in part by Gift from Our Day Sponsor. The annual Rose Mass for Catholic Healthcare Workers celebrated by Bishop Boyer will be at 4.30 p.m. Saturday, March 9th at St. Thomas in Ann Arbor, followed by a reception in the Parish Hall. Karen Bussey, Director of the Mother Teresa House, will speak on redemptive suffering. Suggested free will donation is $20. RSVP at cmalansing at gmail.com. That's cmalansing at gmail.com. No one should ever have to choose between feeding their family and keeping their heat on. Impossible questions like rent or diapers demand answers every day, likely in your very own neighborhood, but you can help. Hope Clinic partners with you to provide free medical, dental, food, and behavioral health care, all in Jesus' name. While others face impossible choices, your choice is an easy one. Partner with Hope Clinic today. Find out how at www.thehopeclinic.org. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio, weekdays on Ave Maria Radio. People think it's easier to stay in the muck. The devil that we know is easier than the devil we don't know, but what they don't realize is that the situation can get worse. And what we're seeing now with some of these very liberal orders, let's say, for example, these liberal orders that are dying out, especially religious sisters, dying out, literally folding. And then you have the religious orders such as the Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist, the Dominican Sisters in Nashville, the Sisters of Life in New York, flooded with requests for information and to meet with the sisters about this beautiful life because they're so joyful because they are living the truth of Scripture and the truth of the Eucharist of Jesus. But these people will not let go because then you have to look yourself in the mirror and then you have to surrender. I think it all goes back to the Garden of Eden. Who's God? Are we God or is God God? 
Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio. Weekday mornings from 8 to 10 a.m. on Ave Maria Radio and AveMariaRadio.net. Fire on the earth, Peter Herbeck. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. And one of the things that he meant by that was the Christian people understand the larger story that's unfolding in history. So as St. Paul said, as the saints echoed very clearly, we're now living through just a, a short moment, a slight momentary affliction, he calls it, in this life, which is going to make way and lead us to an eternal glory beyond all compare. The secret to the fruitfulness and the strength of the apostles was that they lived with a clear vision of the future, an eternal perspective, fixed on the destiny of where their life was headed. And they lived with the realization that, wow, yeah, life is very short here. Everything is temporary. Nothing here in this world is ultimately going to last except the ultimate destinies, the eternal destinies of every human being that exists on the earth. And they knew that whether good things were coming their way or bad things from the world's perspective were coming away, nothing could steal from them, nothing could take away the gold that was in their heart, the treasure that they bore. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Peter Herbeck spreads fire on the earth, weekday mornings at 6.30 and again at 11.45 on 990 Ave Maria Radio. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. I'm Al Cresta. Join me right now, Dr. Robert Waples. He is co-editor and managing editor of the Independent Review and professor of economics at Wake Forest University. He is co-editor of Is Social Justice Just? and editor of Pope Francis and the Caring Society. He also hosts an excellent uh, lecture series on modern economic issues at the Great Courses. And Dr. Waples, good to have you back. Thanks. Hey, thank you for having me on. Let's, let's ask a question that... This is one of those things that gets under my skin. I hear frequently from conservative uh, pundits that the United States is bankrupt. So I hear this. It's been said for years. They're not just saying that there's uh, an unhappy relationship between uh, the national debt and the gross domestic product. They're saying we're bankrupt. Is the United States bankrupt? Um, I don't know any definition of bankrupt under which the United States government uh, or country as a whole is bankrupt. Um, so, I mean, okay. what's bank- I mean it's, a, it's a formal process, and you go and you get your debts all rescheduled. Or, or, uh, and we haven't missed any payments on our debt, mm-hmm. the U.S. federal government. So um, we're definitely not bankrupt, although there are some trends sure. that go ahead. make people worried that in the future we might default on our debt. Yeah. Right? Um, I mean, we had our, our credit uh, 
uh, rating go take mm-hmm. knocked down by I think it was Standard and Poor's back in what ten years ago. And in fact, the second one jumped in as well more recently. So okay. two out of the big three have us at a a double A plus. And so the best you can be is triple A, and we're in one notch below okay. perfect rating. So <laughs> right. those credit raters and also markets in general, you know, people who are investing in U.S. government debt don't seem to fear that, at least anytime soon, the U.S. government is going to default on its debt. Yeah. However, I think there are some real reasons for us to worry long-term sure. about the fiscal position. And, you know... Tell us. Tell us what, what we uh, should yeah. be watching here. So here. Here's the fundamental problem, right? We are in an equilibrium politically where we just spend more money every year. The federal government spends more money every year than they bring in. Right. So last year, the federal government spent $6.1 trillion, and their receipts were $4.4 trillion, Mm. Mm -hmm. meaning they had a deficit of $1.7 trillion added on top of all the other borrowing they'd done in the past. Mm -hmm. And that borrowing has now climbed over the course of, you know, world wars and financial crises and COVID shutdowns and all that stuff, uh, the debt is now $34 trillion. And to put that into context, what economists usually do is compare that to the size of the entire U.S. economy. Right. So the debt is $34 trillion. The entire economy, the value of all the goods and services we produce in a year is $28 trillion. The debt is bigger than GDP. Yeah. It's about 120% of GDP. If you divide that debt by every citizen of the United States, it comes out a little over 100000 bucks. So that's what people are worried about. Yeah. That's a yeah. lot of debt, and it just keeps going up. Right. And so the Congressional Budget Office, you know, which plot, plots out these projections, basically says they don't think that the U.S. government's going to be raising more than about 19, 20% of GDP in terms of receipts, in terms of taxes. Uh, just politically, it hasn't gone above that. Okay. And yet our expenditure has gone above that and is plotted out to go more and more above that, especially because of all the, the entitlement spending. Yeah. Uh, you think first of Social Security, but even more of that is spending on medical things, Medicare, Medicaid, right. et cetera. Right. And their projections are that our debt-to-GDP ratio is now 120%, how much we owe, compared, and they project it, it's going to be 200% in about yeah. 30 years. So that's the worry, and I guess the other thing that's beating part of this is that we borrow so much, we've got to pay interest on it. Yes, and yes. We we used to, lucky, get to borrow really cheap, but not anymore. Interest rates have gone up quite a bit, and so a good portion of that climb is interest payments just exploding. Yeah. So, I heard big, big debt numbers. I heard Fred Smith from FedEx last week during an interview say that we spend more uh, on interest for the national debt than we actually spend on the Department of Defense each year. I believe that is now is now true, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's sobering. That is, yeah. Yeah, is. That's sobering. Um, <laughs> well, what what is... Let me try. Let me flip this another way. What do we do about it? No, that that's. I don't want to go that far yet. Okay. <laughs> what is debt good for? Yeah. So you know, 
most people listening, uh, you and I, have been in debt at some point in in their lives. Sure. And so debt is especially meant for situations where um, you have, like, something really big that you need to pay for, and it's going to be hard to pay for it all right now, like when you buy your first house, Mm -hmm. something like that. Or like it's World War II, and we know this war is a really big expense. We don't want to raise taxes so high that people won't have an incentive to go out and work. And so the benefits of winning the war are going to come in the future. Okay, well, let's borrow, and then people, us, ourselves, our kids, in the future will pay it off. Another good reason for debt is if there's some kind of project that, you know, you could invest in it and it's going to yield you a really high rate of return. Mm-hmm. So companies borrow money all the time. So, you know, they build new factories and they do research and development and all that stuff. It's going to pay off in the future. So the government, the U.S. government, to a degree, has done that. And throughout most of its history, the, pl- the general trend was... Like, we were born in debt, right? We had to borrow money to win the American Revolution. Yeah, absolutely. And then after the war's over, yeah. you slowly pay the debt off. Or if you don't pay it off, the economy grows faster than the debt, and so it gets smaller and smaller in comparison to the size of the economy. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened after the Revolution and the War of 1812 and the Mexican War and the Civil War and World War One and World War Two. And then it, it was going down after World War Two. The The level of debt after World War Two was close to what it is now, a little bit lower, and then we kind of paid it down all the way into the, the 70s, and then the political equilibrium changed, and people just had new ideas that it's okay uh, to run debt deficits even in times of peace, and especially in time of recession, but then after that, not even in time of recession. And so that's the political equilibrium that we're in now, we're spending Right. And that's become a way of life for us. It's become a way of life. Yeah. And so yeah. a political gridlock or, or something's going on that's a change in the mindset has occurred so that uh, I guess some people are comfortable with this or they just say it hasn't been a problem, it's not going to be a problem. The politicians and voters are acting as though like there's some free lunches out there yeah. and yeah. we can just you know live beyond our means forever. And no individual can do that. Can the government do that? If the creditors think that the tax base will grow well into the future, and or maybe the government will raise tax rates in the future, then they won't be worried. But if they start to be worried about those things, eh, yeah, they also have a worry that the government can use a superpower that none of us have, and that is to just start paying off its debt. By printing money. By printing money. But that's inflationary, right? That causes inflation. And, yeah, and that can, boy, that can destroy your economy really fast, as other countries like Argentina uh, have shown. Now, now we we hold our debt uh, in in dollars, right? We we, do, yeah. And that gives us, that means that we we don't, we won't, probably won't default on our debt because we just print dollars to pay them. Uh, but that creates other yeah. problems. Yeah, there's like this special ability we have to do that. Individuals yeah. can't do that. Other countries are just not in a really good position to do that, a lot of them, because nobody will lend them money in their own currency. Right. Or not enough people will lend them money in their own currency, and so they've got to borrow in terms of dollars. Yeah. And so, so in fact... Foreign foreign holders of U.S. debt, you know, add up to somewhere in, in the neighborhood of like about six trillion dollars mm. at this point, and that includes like the government of Japan holding over a trillion. China used to be higher than that, although they scaled down a little bit below that, and you know, plenty of other individuals 
and banks and governments in other countries. And so a worry is that, you know, if we start getting in trouble and printing up money, and they won't be willing to roll over our debt, yeah. and other people won't accept at really high interest rates, and then they'll just start printing up money and causing a lot of inflation. Well, yeah. so let me ask you about another th- threat that comes up. People talk about uh, uh, this union of uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, uh, this BRICS uh, group, mm-hmm. uh, that they have a plan to dethrone the dollar as the reserve currency uh, of the world. Mm-hmm. Are they a threat? And so... The dollar's dominance has slowly been chipped away, and given that you know the U.S. percent of the entire world economy peaked a while ago and is shrinking, mainly because other economies are growing so rapidly and catching up with us, I think that that shrinking away of the dominance of the dollar is somewhat inevitable. But um, there's still lots and lots of other countries, other people in other countries, businesses in other countries that want to make their contracts with each other in terms of dollars because the dollar is safe, because yeah. the dollar is stable. And then if we start running the giant debt and printing up extra money and the dollar loses its value, they will flee it, and we will lose that exorbitant privilege, as it's called. So if the dominance of the U.S. dollar fades substantially in the future, mm-hmm. it will have more to do with our for management of the U.S. economy uh, than with BRICS? Probably. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay. I'm not a prophet when it comes to these things, but <laughs> yeah, probably that's what will happen. <laughs> um, so what should we do about it? We've got a minute. <laughs> yeah, what should we do about it? Business as usual just not not working, and so... What I always talk about with my students is, if you look around the, the world, find some countries that people are willing to lend money to that don't have big debts, and what do they have in common? And so examples would be Switzerland or Sweden. What they have in, in common is constitutional level or quasi-constitutional level rules that say you can't run a deficit debt above a certain amount with just the standard majority. Hmm. If you want to run giant deficits like we've been doing, you need a super majority. Okay. So not 50% plus one, you know, 60% of the people in the legislature, or two-thirds or something like that. Yeah. That would take a constitutional amendment to do that. Okay. That, yeah. And that's tough. Constitutional amendments are tough. Yeah. 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 Well, Dr. Waples, thanks once again. It's always great talking with you. And, uh, and it's always great talking with you. Thank you for having thank me you. on. Dr. Robert Waples, again, editor of Pope Francis and the Caring Society. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and his gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. In Michigan, you are never more than six miles away from a body of water. Shouldn't your kids know how to swim? Big Blue Swim School will give your children the skills they need to keep them safe in the water. 
Locally owned, Big Blue Swim School is on West Eisenhower Parkway in Ann Arbor, just down from Whole Foods. Stop in or visit BigBlueSwimSchool.com. Register by March 17th to get 60% off your first four lessons when you mention Ave Maria Radio. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Parents often complain that their kids either don't do their chores or don't do a good job with them. How can parents teach kids to do chores well? The easiest way to teach kids healthy attitudes toward chores is to create family work rituals, where families do chores together. Daily family work rituals give parents and kids an opportunity to work side by side, learning good stewardship, responsibility, and teamwork. Family work rituals provide on-the-job training for chores so that when kids eventually get their own chores, they know what's expected of them and how to do them well. That's one reason family rituals for working together are such an important part of Catholic family life. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Why does marriage require complete fidelity between spouses? The Catholic Catechism states that the intimate union of marriage is a mutual self-giving of two persons ordered to the welfare of their children, which requires that there be an unbreakable union between them. The deepest reason is found in the fidelity of Christ to his church. Through the sacrament of matrimony, the spouses are able to represent that fidelity and witness to it. For these reasons, the spouses can be nothing but completely faithful to one another. Marriage is such a deep, personal union of giving oneself to the other that it cannot, the Catechism asserts, be an arrangement until further notice. As difficult as it may seem to retain this indissolubility for a lifetime, it is made possible by God's irrevocable love in which the couple shares and which will support them through their marital journey. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Light of the East Weekends on Ave Maria Radio. I'm Father Thomas Loya. This week on Ave Maria, getting weary of the Lenten fasting? Sneaked that piece of chocolate or gossiped about someone? Take heart. Encouragement is here on the Sunday of the Veneration of the Cross. Now on Ave Maria Radio's newest FM stations, 105.5 FM in Southfield and 107.9 FM in Ann Arbor. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Well, last week, from uh, Wednesday through Saturday, the uh, Conservative Political Action Conference took place, and our friend Dr. Michael New uh, was there. He is assistant professor of practice at the Bush School of Business at the Catholic University of America and a senior associate scholar 
at the Charlotte Luzier Institute. He's also a Page Comstock Cunningham Fellow at the Americans United for Life. And Michael, good to have you here. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Let's uh, let's tell tell us what you saw uh, at CPAC. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, CPAC takes place every year. It's kind of a very big gathering for kind of right of center people, both from D.C. and around the country. Uh, but it's changed somewhat in recent years. Uh, at one point, it was kind of a melting pot. You had libertarians, you had national security conservatives, social conservatives would all come and kind of hash out and debate different ideas. In recent years, it's become kind of a big fan fest for Donald Trump. Uh, Nearly all of the speakers support President Trump. Uh, Nearly all the booths of the exhibit hall are groups of kind of a pro-Trump orientation. So it's become kind of less ecumenical in a sense. It's become kind of more of a rally for Trump and his supporters, and uh, this year that was certainly the case. Yeah. And and so, I mean, is there less creative conversation as a result of that? Uh, to some extent, yes. I mean, uh, they used to even have, you know, many debates where, you know, conservatives with somewhat different takes on things would go back and forth and engage each other. Uh, that's gone. You know, uh, okay. there's probably less discussion about certain aspects of public policy yeah. uh, than there used to be. Uh, that, again, you know, economic conservatives, you know, wouldn't say were absent, but they certainly were, you know, a little more marginalized. Mm-hmm. There was kind of more of an emphasis, I thought, on kind of culture war issues this year, which are, you know, certainly important. Uh, but I would say that, again, that probably did reduce the, the amount, and I would say the quality of the debate at this year's CPAC. Do you, do you think that, does that have uh, wider political uh, consequences? Um, does that represent a shrinking of a con- of the conservative base? You know, potentially it does. I mean, it's kind of hard to really read too much in just one conference sure. or the weekend out of the year. Yeah. You know, I think that the CPAC certainly uh, is you know, well-liked and well-respected. Mm-hmm. You know, Ronald Reagan spoke there on many occasions. Yep. Uh, certainly, you know, uh, gave him and his candidacy, you know, a launch. Um but, you know, I, I do think that, uh, you know, you do have a point that uh, I do think that it does kind of show that there are certain people with right of center views who just no longer feel comfortable or feel welcome. You know, I think that there's certainly a lot of unease in the conservative movement about Trump. Yeah. Certainly is a vocal supporters, but certainly has some critics. And those critics really were not present over the weekend. Okay. Okay. Um, they take a straw poll. Uh, so I, <laughs> how the straw poll shook. Work out well. They do a poll on a variety of questions, and one question they ask, not surprisingly, is who the Republicans nominate for president. <laughs> As you can probably figure out, Donald Trump uh, won and won pretty resoundingly. He defeated Nikki Haley by a whopping ninety-four to five margin. <laughs> well, so if you look at the results of these Republican primaries. You know, Nikki Haley is getting you know high thirties, low forties. Yeah. Uh, this read this show that the sort of CPAC attendee is a lot more you know pro-Trump than the Republican primary electorate <laughs> as a whole. Right, so, right. Uh, that was certainly you know, unsurprising, but worth noting. Yeah, yeah. Now, did they do anything for a vice presidential candidate? That would be more uh, interesting. Yes, this was kind of interesting. I mean, obviously, there's no consensus about who President Trump ought to pick as VP. Uh, the two candidates who came in first were South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem. Um, she spoke at CPAC. And uh, presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. Also got 15%. Okay. So uh, both of these individuals spoke at CPAC. That probably did help them a bit. Again, each receiving 15%. Uh, former, interestingly, former Democratic Congressman Tulsi Gabbard, she spoke at CPAC. 
She finished third with 9%. Hmm. And uh, Congressman Elise Stefanik and Senator Tim Scott each finished fourth with 8%. So uh, lots of candidates were interesting to, uh, you know, the attendees, uh, but no real consensus about who the VP really ought to be. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, Was the attendance down or up? You know, officially they say, you know, attendance was up last year, but I'll be honest, I'm skeptical you know, I know Thursday it seemed pretty thin. Okay. Uh, now, again, Thursdays, the students haven't arrived yet. And of all the days, it's probably the least well attended. Certainly, there was a very large and enthusiastic crowd for, you know, Donald Trump on Saturday. Yep. But just by eyeballing things, it seemed attendance was down. Uh, yeah. I didn't, wouldn't say it was dramatically down, you know, but it did not appear to be as well attended as past CPAC. Okay. Okay. And uh, the pro-life issue, uh, was that discussed? Was there a panel on it? Yeah, thankfully, the first time since 2021, there was an issue devoted, a panel, I should say, devoted to sanctity of life issues, which, you know, I've written about, and I appreciate the fact that CPAC did host a panel on this issue. Uh, Thursday, it was a panel titled Babies Are Us. Uh, Panelists were Penny Nance, uh, President and CEO of Concerned Women for America, and Brandy Swindell. Uh, who is the founder and CEO of Scathing Healthcare, which is a chain of pro-life pregnancy help centers. Mm-hmm. The panel was moderated by Abraham Enriquez, who is the founder and president of Bienvenido U.S., a group that does conservative outreach to Hispanics. And it was you know, lively and, uh, you know, appreciated, you know, that uh, Brittany Swindell has a new project on stopping abortion abuse and trying to highlight instances of coerced abortion and talked about that. Uh, Penny Nance talked about politics quite a lot and just said the republicans need to lead on this issue and they don't need to be defensive uh that if you try to ignore the issue uh, the other side defines you yeah and we need to find our opponents as the ones who are extremists so again it was a good panel uh good comments by everybody i think it did inspire attendees to go out and do more to build a, a culture of life yeah very good uh did uh, they have panels on uh, say china yeah, there were panels on a wide range of issues. I mean, there was certainly a panel on China. You know, there were panels on, you know, health care reform. Uh, human trafficking has become kind of a hot issue lately in conservative circles. There was a panel on that. Uh, also a panel on immigration. Uh, there were a lot of elected officials spoke. As I mentioned, Governor Christy Nub spoke. Uh, that, uh, you know, Tulsi Gabbard spoke, who's interesting. I mean, she's actually a, a Democrat, uh, but has sometimes bucked her party on certain issues. Right. And she's a speaking slot. So, uh, you know, wide, you know, there were a range of issues, but I will say that again, uh, issues of interest to economic conservatives, you know, were not, uh, really discussed all that much. I wish there was more of a discussion on Ukraine. You know, a couple of years ago when the invasion started, conservatives were very excited to support Ukraine. Right. And now there's a lot more kind of Ukraine skepticism. Right. Especially kind of in the Trump wing of the conservative movement. Uh, that wasn't really discussed much at all. So I think there were some missed opportunities for issues that might have been, might have been of interest to people. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you see a new conservative leadership rising up there? Well, it's kind of hard to say what will happen uh, when kind of Donald Trump you know does vanish from the political scene. You know that uh, you know right now you do have uh, you know some other conferences that have kind of sprouted up to rival CPAC. I don't think they have quite uh, the attendance levels, but they are gaining some some attention. You know, the Bill Crystal's group did host a conference the same weekend, which did feature some, you know, well-known speakers. You know, Ramesh Panuru, you know, editor of National Review, spoke at this gathering. Yeah. You know, as Asa Hutchinson, you know, a uh, governor of Arkansas and presidential candidate. 
So, uh, you know, I think that uh, there may be, you know, rival conferences uh, that do spring up that may not be, you know, quite as popular, uh, but do certainly draw some attendance away from CPAC. Um, you know, again, I think that uh, it remains to be seen what happens when, you know, Trump leaves the political scene. Yeah. Do we see a CPAC that's kind of, you know, still devoted to the issues that were of interest to Trump and his supporters, or do we see a CPAC that's more kind of ecumenical? I think that just remains to be seen. Yeah. So, uh, Bill Crystal obviously planned his, his conference to run at the same time uh, CPAC was running, and um, do we know what kind of attendance he had? Off the top of my head, I don't know. I mean, they seemed happy. You know, they said that uh, their conference, you know, sold out or was, you know, very close to it. You know, um, I obviously, I wish I could buy locate and have said both conferences. <laughs> uh, I'm not Padre Pio. I'm trying to get there. Uh, but they did seem happy with turnout and attendance and media coverage. So uh, something to keep an eye on. Yeah, yeah. Well, Michael, thank you so much. It's always good talking with you. And uh, uh, I, I really here. appreciate your insights uh, into CPAC. We'll, we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Dr. Michael New is Assistant Professor of Practice at the Bush School of Business at the Catholic University of America. He also is a Senior Associate Scholar at the Charlotte Luzier Institute, and uh, he joins us regularly, mostly on on pro-life issues. He's uh, an outstanding analyst, and I always appreciate his annual attendance at the CPAC, the, the Conservative Political Action Conference, uh, and his reporting on it uh, for us because it gives us some idea of, you know, what's going on in conservative, politically conservative circles. And, I, and there's no doubt, I mean, there's simply no doubt that Donald Trump has become the dynamic force within American conservatism. And it's uh, he's a dominant force. And the truth is, uh, he has a guaranteed place in America's history books. Uh, his his whole story is going to be well studied by historians uh, in the in the future, regardless of what happens. Uh, the election of twenty twenty four, whether he wins or loses, it looks obvious that he's going to be the Republican nominee. So, what can you say? It's going to it's going to happen, but the It'll be interesting to see, um, you know, what a second Trump, if he gets elected, what a second Trump administration would look like. Um, And it's, you know, there's a lot of, you've all, you all are well aware of the debate going on about the fitness of President Biden uh, to run. Uh, There are plenty of people still claiming that he's not going to be the Democrat nominee. Uh, that raises all kinds of troubling questions, it seems to me, about who the Democratic nominee would be. Uh, it's not as though there's a very deep bench uh, there. But uh, the good news—the good news for us as uh, Catholics who are trying to grow in the faith who are trying to understand the world uh, through the lens of Catholic teaching, the good news for us is that we're to be responsible uh, citizens. So we, we, we do. We take place, uh, we take our place in doing politics. Um, but the, we, we work for something much more 
than political victories. Uh, there's an ultimate political victory, and that is when the king returns. Uh, we shouldn't we shouldn't uh, be dis, uh, irresponsible uh, with our. I mean, we are citizens, so we should be responsible in our citizenship and make good electoral choices. Uh, but we all know that all those choices are relative to the great moment when the king will return and establish his own administration, you might say. And we should never forget that, because the coming of Christ will relativize all human kingdoms in all human political efforts. And so this is why we should never permit our politics to uh, distort our witness to Jesus. Um, it's easy to get uh, morally indignant and filled with outrage over the, our political circumstances, but that gets in the way of us proclaiming the kingdom that is yet to come in its fullness. I'm Al Cresta. This week on Christ is the Answer, it's the season of Lent, and Father John wants to help us prepare for Easter. Let's start out with a question. What are you doing to prepare for Lent? The Church has so many faithful ways for us to traverse this season of fasting so that we can get the most out of prayer and penance. Join us this week as Father John wants to help us get the most out of Lent, as well as how Jesus wants us to pray. Tune in for Christ is the Answer, Monday through Fridays at 11 a.m. on Ave Maria Radio. Food for the Journey, Sister Anne Shield. You know, we would avoid a lot of difficult arguments just spouting off at the mouth, as we sometimes say. Just ask the Lord, give me the words to say. Maybe I'm rightfully angry, but if I just shout and yell and scream, what good is that going to be? Brothers and sisters, God can give us much more control over our anger, over our fear, over our language. And so whenever you're in a tight spot, just stop for a moment and say, Lord, what would you have me do here? God is good. I don't mean he's going to say words that will come down from heaven. But if you pause just for a moment, you'll get hold of yourself. And you may well get a thought that you didn't have before. And sometimes it's just quiet, but it's enough to bring down the steam. And then you think what is really right to say here. You might be justifiably angry. How do we respect the other person while we're correcting them? Please, brothers and sisters, let us open our hearts to God in those moments. Sister Ann Shields gives you food for the journey. Weekday mornings at 645 and again at 1130 on 990 Ave Maria Radio. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Got a great hour coming up uh, with Dr. Robert Festigi. Uh, there was a story 
um, a few years ago that we spent just a little bit of time on. Um, and it had to do with uh, a publication put out by the Pontifical Academy for Life. It was edited by President Archbishop uh, Vincenzo Pallium. The title was Theological Ethics of Life, Scripture, Tradition, Practical Challenges. And the, the book made the claim that somehow we're to enter a new paradigm in moral theology. Um, and obviously, if people are talking about a new paradigm, you want to ask, well, what's its relationship to the old paradigm, right? I mean, are we displacing uh, what we have uh, taught uh, throughout the centuries? And this, is, this comes up constantly uh, in Catholic circles. A uh, new paradigm was coined by Cardinal Walter Casper, going back to the first reactions to the apostolic exhortation of Morris Leticia. So there we have another new paradigm. Um, <laughs> exactly what we're talking about, we're going to find out when we're joined by Dr. Robert Festigi of Sacred Heart Major Seminary. He and others have edited a new volume 